0: Okay, welcome, welcome back, back to Presidential Podcast. Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we are starting off after a long delay with uh, James Monroe.
1: Well, i got to say I'm really glad to be back after the long pandemic. Uh, being stuck at home for a year. It probably looked like the spook in the old B.C. cartoon where... Uh, the guy has been hanging on the wall, hasn't shaved or got a haircut for a year. A little better shape than that, but thank God this is radio. So as uh, Phil mentioned, today we're starting off with uh, James Monroe, the famous author of the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, that the United States of America was going to be the leading power in the Western Hemisphere. And a number of other... Uh, Significant contributions Monroe made uh, in the domestic politics of the United States. So, Monroe was the last of, uh, or toward the end, of the succession of presidents from Virginia and from Massachusetts. The Virginians are Washington, who, even though he's born in Virginia, is not considered part of the Virginia dynasty. So it was Washington, his vice president, John Adams. John Adams' uh, successor was his vice president, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, in turn, was succeeded by James Madison and James Monroe. And the two Jameses were Jefferson's key assistants, his key lieutenants during his presidency. They handled policy. Uh, Jefferson basically lived as a recluse in the White House uh, for the uh, entire two terms of his presidency and ran the presidency through Monroe and through Madison, who carried out his his orders and uh, communicated with people who uh, Jefferson had to hear from. Uh, Monroe was an able attorney, uh, a diplomat, had served in the Senate, had served as governor of Virginia. So he had a very long, uh, for especially for such a young man as he was at the time that he joined Jefferson, he had a, a very long career in public service, and he really had an impact in American life that we don't consider today. I mean, taking Uh, One of the main issues, uh, race relations and uh, slavery in the United States. Uh, Most Americans just hear the the slavery, and for them it's almost like an S word, you know. We can barely pronounce it. And we think to ourselves, how in heaven's name could uh, educated, civilized people back in the day possibly have engaged in such a horrible thing as slavery. And, you know, it goes back to the very beginnings of civilization, all the classical uh, civilizations had slaves, the civilizations of antiquity had slaves, and essentially it was the uh, Industrial Revolution and the substitution of machine power for uh, muscle power that allowed us to get out of slavery and, and, and abolish it. But, uh, Monroe was president when they, even the nature of slavery in the United States changed. I mean, there was a lot of anxiety around slavery at Washington's time. Uh, Washington did not manumit his slaves. He uh, bequeathed them to his wife and the condition they had between them. Was that she would manumit the slaves upon the time of her death? In other words, uh, since the slaves were hers, she would keep them. But then, when she was dead, her her heirs would not receive the uh, the property. And this kind of was the the idea of slavery that we we're we're, we're growing out of it. You know, and this was uh, how Monroe, Madison, Washington saw it. They it's a number of of. Uh, slaves and their progeny increased more and more farmland, more and more resources would have to be given over to the protection of slaves and the slave owners recognized that at some point they would have too many mouths to feed and slavery would cease being a, a benefit to them and somehow or another at that point in the future they would figure out how to manumit the slaves, how to free the slaves how to set them to work at uh, con- s- constructive uh, occupations of their own and let the, uh, let the descendants of the slaves support themselves in whatever political relationship they had with the new American republic. And in, in uh, Monroe's term, uh, the United States spread into new lands, uh, basically south of the uh, Cumberland River, uh, Cumberland being the uh, east-west axis, and north of the Gulf of Mexico, east of the Mississippi, and uh, west of central Georgia, the akumal Fogie River in, in central Georgia. So this, this big part of the United States Western Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, uh, came into our our possession as territories and changed the nature of slavery. Suddenly, uh, cotton surpassed tobacco as our main export. The uh, value of American exports increased dramatically twelve-fifteen-fold of what it was when we were depending on tobacco. Uh, Millions, literally millions of acres of land were devoted to cotton uh, production. And in order to uh, exploit these resources uh, required incredible amounts of labor and required the labor of people who were familiar with, with cotton as, as, as a crop. You know, obviously, we don't grow cotton in Europe. They didn't grow cotton in Europe back then. So, the uh, the white settlers were unfamiliar with the plant. Uh, for all their erudition, Jefferson wrote a book about uh, cotton uh, cotton cultivation, but the, the descendants of the slaves, the descendants of the Africans, and the Africans brought in From Africa after the uh, foundation of the American Republic. These were the people who figured out how to grow the cotton, how to actually go out in the field and make the seeds sprout up and and come into cotton plants. Of course, we also look at the invention of the cotton gin by a New Englander, Eli Whitney, which allowed us, allowed the people back then to separate the seeds from the long stem cotton. Which gave us good fibers that were easily woven into cloth. Uh, and instead of having to laboriously hand pick the seeds out from the cotton fibers, uh, the machine could do it. They could bale the cotton, ship it off to Britain, and uh, make enormous fortunes. So Monroe presided over that as well. And this was one of the big changes in American life, a, a, a change that had repercussions far into our era. So for this we're going to talk about Monroe's life, we're going to talk about his childhood, we're going to talk about his education, his ability to attach himself to mentors. Uh, We'll discuss how he went from being a young man, a promising young man who was uh, mentored into becoming a diplomat how his career was almost ended, he made a a major political blunder as a young man, his recovery by serving as governor of Virginia, the controversies in his term as governor of Virginia, his Senate service, his time with uh, Jefferson, the Jefferson administration, his presidency, his retirement, and we will assess Monroe's uh, legacy for the whole United States. So Phil, you wanna start us off? One one other comment before I I ask the first question is we'll primarily be using encyclopedia, Britannica encyclopedia, uh, World Book, and Wikipedia as our source material. Uh, We're not gonna go into any controversies about Monroe's life, but we are gonna try and interpret his influence in. Uh, on American history and we'll try to understand his life as he lived it. Okay.
0: Okay, so you you want to cover Monroe. Previously you were talking
1: about uh, the era of good feelings, I think, or? Well, the era of good feeling comes late. That comes during uh, Monroe's presidency. Okay, but you
0: would rather take it? From a racial perspective and the institution of slavery, that's what you mean. Uh, no,
1: no. We'll we'll look at the the era of good feeling. I mean, typically, this is how we look at uh, Monroe in our in our current time. That he presided over the era of good feeling. The uh, uh, political factions of the United States had basically fused into one party. Uh, regionalism was not a uh, divisive, it was a, uh, a noteworthy thing in American politics, excuse me, but it wasn't the divisive thing that it would become during the 40s and 50s. Uh, we'll stick with all that, but I do want to talk about how the, the nature of slavery changed as a result of the technology and as a result of um, uh, Monroe's term. All right. All right, so let's
0: begin with. Um Monroe's uh, early life. Okay, he's from the... All right, this is where we get him. Oh, that, you should sit over there. This is where we...
1: Hang on. Okay. And he was born uh, in the Northern Neck, right? Uh, It says
0: Westmoreland County. Right,
1: in the Northern Neck, which is the the, the part along the Potomac. There's a a series of rivers, the Rappahannock, the James, the Potomac, that uh, separate the Virginia Tidewater into three big peninsulas. And the uh, northern neck was uh, Washington. How how many years younger, so he
0: was born in 58, how many years younger is he than uh, um, Jefferson?
1: Jefferson, uh, let's see. I gotta think of how old Jefferson was. Jefferson was 48 when he became president.
0: Okay, Uh, 1801, no. He was older than that. Jefferson was born in
1: 1743. So 15 years, 15 years apart. Uh, Madison was born in 52, Monroe was born in 58, Washington was born in 32. Okay. So these are all 1700 or 18th century dates. Okay. Okay. So So, he attended school on a farm uh, at 11. Well, he had this sad childhood. There were five or six kids in the family. uh, Nobody particularly noteworthy. His father was a kind of a middle-level landowner, didn't have a big farm, didn't have a little farm. But the man died uh-huh. early in uh, in Monroe's life, early in James's life. And James was essentially an orphan. And it devolved on him to support the brothers and sisters. He was the, the oldest and the biggest, you know. Uh, still a young boy, but he endeavored to support his, his younger siblings. And... Uh, Apparently, just barely kept the wolf off the door. Uh, you, know, you can imagine a teenage boy or, or younger struggling to run a farm, for, struggling to feed children. And uh, he did as well as he could, but he didn't do a particularly great job of it. And it came to notice, and people started noticing, and started thinking, uh, this boy has potential. He's a hard worker. He's got a good mind. He's got a lot of other kids he's supporting. And so they were willing to to send him off to school.
0: So he went to school. Later, he was enrolled in the College of William and Mary, which is still existent, right? Right.
1: Pretty prestigious. Right. And he was probably one of their more prestigious early graduates. Okay. All right, then the
0: next we hear about him is basically after dropping out of college, dropping out and then going into the Continental army Yes okay, so um, tell us about his if you if you want to go into well this, this, is,
1: this is not uh, a story as illustrious as Alexander Hamilton, for instance, his contemporary who had an extremely good relationship with Washington, uh, tremendous personality, tremendous gifts of leadership and organization. But uh, Monroe was up there. I mean, Monroe was one of the people who Hamilton looked at as a dependable officer, an ally in uh, organizing and in uh, carrying out Washington's orders. Washington appears to have been fairly fond of Monroe trusted him, uh, he was, he was a, uh, an important part of Washington's official family, he was wounded, you know, which uh, distinguished him from some of the others, you know, severely wounded in combat. And uh, so he was one of the founding revolutionary junta of the United States.
0: Okay, he gets married. Um, He studies, oh, he starts to study law with Jefferson after getting out of the military. Did he meet Jefferson in the military? Or we don't know.
1: My my sense would be no. Washington uh, spent most of the war in the New York City area. Mm -hmm. And uh, Monroe would have been up there with Washington. Jefferson. Uh, was Philadelphia, in France, and also for a bit at the capital of Virginia, uh, which at the time was near Yorktown, um, where they do it's the place where they do the enactments. Uh, Williamsburg. Right. And uh, so uh, Jefferson and, and Monroe probably weren't that aware of each other, but again, after the war, uh, Jefferson was kind of like the, the mentor, protector. Uh, he, he realized how sharp Monroe was. Uh, back then, you could read law, work in an attorney's office, and, and enter the bar based on, on what you learned okay, so he gets, from that instruction.
0: All right, so he gets sent, basically, to uh, Williamsburg to study law under Jefferson... Was Jefferson at the time already Jefferson?
1: This is, this is the nascent period of Jefferson becoming Jefferson. That uh, he had written the, the Declaration of Independence and so was clearly seen as one of the critical political leaders. He had served as minister to France and by then minister to Britain, uh, where he went on a mission with uh, John Adams and was royally humiliated by King George. Um, He had been governor of Virginia, driven out of his own capital by the British Army, so his term as governor of Virginia was somewhat less than glorious. But uh, we're, we're looking at the, at the beginning times of the U.S. Constitution, and Jefferson was in Europe in, uh, serving as Minister to France when they wrote the Constitution. But when he came back, he was an anti-federalist. He wanted, uh, Jefferson wanted to retain a, a, an extremely decentralized government maybe strengthen some of the Articles of Confederation, but basically have a very decentralized government.
0: Did Monroe follow in that philosophy?
1: Uh, Monroe and Madison were sort of uh, bridges between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And uh, Madison and Jefferson came up with a compromise uh, by which the federal government took over the state's war debts and their other debts in exchange for uh, agreement on the Constitution. Why but was Jefferson,
0: Jefferson so anti-federalist?
1: Part of it is Jefferson's natural philosophical development of a very strong yeomanry, very responsive government, And
0: and for those who don't know, when you say yeoman, you mean uh, like a citizen farmer, right?
1: Like uh, a small farmer, what today we would consider a small farmer. Uh, uh, A man running the sort of farm that he could operate on his own, maybe with a a hand or two, a hired hand or two, his sons, uh, something like that. Back then, it's probably about less than 60 acres. So, men who uh, owned their homes, owned the land that uh, sustained them, uh, who had weapons, who were willing to appear and uh, serve in the militia there at their own expense with their own weapons, and who could vote? And uh, those were all requirements for for voting, uh, land ownership, adulthood. Uh, and the financial background to, to participate in the militia. Uh, Monroe pretty much epitomized those those qualities. so he was a, a, an avid supporter and he, he was a very able man. you know he was a f- not gigantic but you know fairly large man commanding presence, somebody who when you encountered him, you would you would listen to him. And then, of course, he was also a lawyer, former military officer, landowner. And uh, I believe his, his marriage also uh, contributed greatly to his status as he married up. Uh, he married a family that was more important, better off than his, had substantial land holdings, slaves, and so uh, he not only had his own abilities, he not only had the uh, status conferred on him by being the protege of Washington and Lee, but now he was beginning to develop his own status through marriage and through his own accomplishments. what
0: What way do you distinguish him from Madison in terms of like you know they both have the plant- they both end up having the plantations, they both. Were proteges to Thomas Jefferson. Where, where do you see the difference, or do you see them?
1: As well, that's. Two that's guys I think that's kind of a really good question. Um, Madison was the unseen intellectual of the Revolution. I mean, uh, Kennedy once made the statement. Uh, Former President John F. Kennedy once made the statement that the White House was graced with its most fabulous intellectual uh, attainment when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Right, so, you know, Jefferson was, uh, his father was an engineer. Jefferson had a lot of practical inventions. He uh, was in Paris. Uh, during the early phases of the French Revolution, was very uh, uh, influenced by the revolutionary doctrines and ideology, Uh, read voraciously, uh, was continuously reading, was well-educated, but continued reading. Madison was the one who was able to keep up with Jefferson on an intellectual basis, but then was able to write Jefferson's ideas in a practical form of government which became the U.S. Constitution. Madison was the one I'm sorry, Madison was the one who wrote the Constitution. Monroe was the one who understood what Madison was getting at. Worked with him enough uh, experienced enough of the same things that Madison went through, talked to him often enough that he knew what Madison was talking about but had the the hands-on, hard-headed kind of skills that one needs to carry it out. So we might say Madison was kind of the brains. Uh, Monroe was kind of the hands.
0: Monroe, who's a... Comparative figure uh, from twentieth century presidential politics, or or, or even nineteenth century presidential politics. Maybe some we've well, covered, the, the, or maybe Well, the, the some two we've not.
1: recent ones. Uh, one, I think, would be Bill Clinton. You you like to my you know, uh Bill Clinton is certainly not an intellectual.
0: He's a Rhodes Scholar? I
1: don't, think, uh, I don't think even Bill Clinton would view himself as an intellectual. But he's a man of, of commanding intellectual stature. Like you mentioned, he's a Rhodes Scholar. He might well be uh, the smartest of the post-World War II presidents in, in terms of the sheer intelligence, sheer capacity of the man's mind. What about Nixon? Nixon would be the one who would rival him. And Obama? Obama's a very good lawyer, great writer, but I don't think he has necessarily, and I don't want to diminish Obama in any way, but I just don't think he has the sort of raw intellectual power that you see in Nixon and Clinton. I mean, he's definitely up there. But,
0: you know, we could even
1: throw him in there. You
0: know. but you, so you take Nixon I mean you take Clinton as a Madison figure and then you take LBJ as a Monroe figure I know they're not in the same order but no
1: Clinton is a Monroe figure okay somebody who so knows how to a do Madison things figure. Um, not really not for this time there's nobody who had that kind of profound. maybe Reagan but he was old you know I mean Madison was young when he did his uh, his inventive stuff. Reagan was very old when okay. he was inventive. Okay. All right. Let's get uh, the other one that I might compare Monroe to is is the current president Joe Biden. I mean Biden is very meticulous, very methodical. This is
0: early Biden.
1: This well, is Biden, Biden now. now. I mean, look at look at the uh, rescue America. Was
0: Monroe a showboat like ball? early Biden?
1: No, I'm seeing like Biden now. Very controlled, you know, very concerned about the way he appears. Very good on on the nuts and bolts of legislation. Very political.
0: I mean, Biden... Okay, Biden is very conciliatory. Monroe was conciliatory. Right. Okay. Uh, Yeah, that will bring us back to the era of good feelings, right, later on. There we go. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about um, Monroe gets married. Let's go into his career.
1: All right. So um, starts off in law, and was uh, you know kind of a kind of a macher, kind of a guy who we got these jobs to do. We we need somebody to do it, and uh, kind of got promoted within the organization. You know, not necessarily things that we'd say, uh, yeah, you know, this job or that job, until. He goes abroad. They decided. Uh, Monroe's had a military career. Monroe's got his law degree. Monroe has demonstrated a, a pretty good uh, degree of financial acumen and definitely a command of public finances. He's not Hamilton. He's not Gallatin, but he's up there. You know, he's 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 dependable. He can. He can understand what Hamilton is coming out with, so uh, they thought we have to round him off and send him abroad, have him do some, some diplomatic stuff. So here he's going to get in trouble. So let's, let's go back, and look at uh, his his career in France. And this this is almost going to sink him. So he gets hooked up with uh, uh, something which the. Uh, American minister to France, and I want to say it was Jay. Am I, am I right on that? Was it Jay? Give me a minute here.
0: Um, it looks like months after Monroe arrived in France, the U.S. and Great Britain concluded the Jay Treaty, outraging both the French and Monroe, not fully informed about the treaty prior to its publication. Despite the undesirable effects of the Jay Treaty on Franco-American relations, Monroe won French support for U.S. navigational rights on the Mississippi. And in 1795, the U.S. and Spain signed Pinckney's Treaty. The treaty granted U.S. limited rights over New Orleans. Washington decided... Monroe was inefficient, disruptive and failed to safeguard the national interest. He recalled Monroe in November 96, 1796. He returned to Charlottesville as a dual career as farmer and lawyer. Jackson okay. urged Monroe to run for Congress. All right, let's stop right there.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, Monroe has had an eminent, if not a distinguished career. Maybe even a distinguished career. He said that top echelon of the revolutionary government. You know, he's the one who sits in the room with the big guys, writes down what they say, uh, does, the, does the grunt work, figures out the treaties, uh, schmoozes up the French and the Spaniards, and actually gets the, the treaties on paper and gets them in a form where they can be ratified. And
0: he's not even 40 yet
1: at the time. And he's not even 40 yet. But the political effect of these treaties, even though they were critical to American well-being, the navigation rights of the Mississippi, uh, better... uh, better navigation, uh, the, the rights to the port of New Orleans. Critical, critical things to the, to the westward expansion of the United States, but nobody feels good about this. Uh, the the, the uh, administration in, in, in the capital, the Washington administration, thinks that Monroe has given the Spaniards and the French too many concessions. The Spaniards and the French feel like, oh, you know, somehow that Monroe shafted us out of our our rights to these Western things, you know, uh, the, 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 the Mississippi Valley in, you know, North America. So, everybody's mad. Even though the United States which doesn't even reach to the Mississippi yet, now can use the Mississippi, now can use the port of New Orleans, which controls the Mississippi. So this was a critical, far-seeing, future-oriented let thing me, let me read what, in American history.
0: Let me read what uh, Washington said about uh, the Jay Treaty and about Monroe. The truth is, Mr. Monroe was cajoled, flattered, and made to believe strange things. In return, he did or was disposed to do whatever was pleasing to that nation, reluctantly urging the rights of his own.
1: So, we gave up some things, obviously, to get some bigger things. Washington, who uh, thought the West was Ohio, didn't uh, see the value in what Monroe had done and uh, saw that uh, a lot of the people he borrowed money from and did business with were not happy with us. And said that's all that Brett Monroe's fault. Washington, I wouldn't put it past him to have been pleased to have thought, this is really to the benefit of the country. There's going to be continue to be a westward movement. All those 50,000 acres that I've got out there, they're still going to be prime real estate. People are still going to want to rent my land. I'm still going to make a small fortune off it. But Monroe pissed off a lot of people. We'll get rid of him. That way, somebody can pay the price for all these gains, all even right. though the gains, I mean, did piss off some of the more conservative people, some of the, the status quo types. Tell,
0: tell us about how Monroe recovers from this situation.
1: So basically, as he started reading, he goes into Congress, gets elected, serves in the House, and uh, state, now... State or federal? Federal House. Okay. 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 And, um,
0: and then governor comes later?
1: No, I, we, have, we have to check. Did he become senator first or did he become governor oh, senator first. first senator. So, senator first. So, House gets elected by his friends and neighbors. House elections back then were direct democracy. Every two years, uh, the way they voted was that they would have an assembly... Uh, all the friends and neighbors would gather around, the uh, uh, the property-owning white men would meet, they'd caucus, they'd say, we like such and so, we don't like so and so. They'd take the vote and somebody would come out of it to be sent to Washington and serve as the House representative. Uh, Monroe won that election in Westmoreland County, wherever he was living at the time. The Senate elections were more complicated. Uh, The senators were elected by the state legislatures. So you had to have uh, a broad popular following. People had to know who you are. People had to think of you as somebody who could be a senator. People had to think... uh, my assemblymen, who sent uh, John Smith up to Washington to be our senator, did a good job. So that would be a reason for them to vote for you. If they thought, well, John Smith, who we sent to Washington for a sen- as, to serve as senator, is against my interests, you're going to vote for the other party. So the Senate campaigns were uh, statewide in, in scope but they were decided, it's kind of like the Electoral College now, you know, you get the popular vote, uh, the popular vote chooses the electors, the electors then choose the president. Sort of worked back way, that way back then with the state legislatures choosing the senators and some states, uh, the state senate decided them alone, other states they had a, a, a dual general uh, meeting joint session and they chose the senator f- from that but in any case uh, Monroe at this time rose to statewide office okay is there
0: something you want to mention
1: about his governorship so uh, after serving as senator he went on to governor am I getting my my uh, succession of, of ideas right yes and uh, during his term with governor, he had, a, he had a slave rebellion. Uh, we live at a time in which uh, prominent historical figures who owned slaves or who traded slaves are suffering immense damage to their prestige and their historical image. So here we have uh, one of our presidents, one of our early presidents, who at a really critical part of his career when he was actually uh, building himself up as uh, an eminent figure who could serve in the national government, Washington, D.C., faced with an insurrection of slaves while he was governor. So how did he respond? You know, he did not respond by considering the slaves' uh, demands. He did not respond by trying to uh, help the slave leaders develop a petition to present to the legislature. He did not respond by invoking his Christian duty to uh, be kind and uh, treat slaves in a kindly manner as, uh, you know, the way St. Paul says. Instead, he called out the militia and uh, engaged them in a, 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 a brutal and rapid suppression of the rebellion.
0: And this was seen as a good show of law and order at the time. Absolutely.
1: Okay. I mean, there was no dissent. I mean, it's, you know, in in fact, the speed, the decisiveness, the uh, degree of uh, determinedness that he showed in putting the slaves right back in their place Now the pres- was viewed as, as putting him head and shoulders above some of the other political leaders. The president who
0: succeeded him was John Quincy Adams, Correct. who was much more, would have been much more reluctant to...
1: Well, he was never a governor. But he wasn't a pro-slave guy. No, he was an abolitionist.
0: Right. Okay. Um... All right. Any other notable points about his governorship before we talk about his time in? Judgment? Well, that
1: was that was probably the, the the biggest thing and the thing that I would that I would want to emphasize. And uh, do you think that um,
0: they had it? Do you feel like morality or morally speaking, both ages have a point to make? Obviously, the look at look at the well, date.
1: Look at the date. Let's re let's remember the exact date. Okay.
0: Gabriel's rebellion
1: 1800. So this is very early on. All right. This is this is at a time when presumably liberal opinion Uh, he also
0: I'm sorry he also created a secretly uh, create worked with Jefferson to secure a location where free and enslaved African Americans suspected of conspiracy insurgency treason and rebellion would be permanently banished interesting so um, you were going to say something about liberal feelings
1: liberal feeling was we can't support the slaves and their children and the retired slaves. You know, when the slaves get too old to work and they're old and we have to continue feeding them, we have to provide medical care. Um, so one of, one of the um, ideas that they concocted to deal with this was to send these people back to Africa. And we actually—it reminds me
0: of um, not Adelman. What's the what's the name of the uh, Nazi guy that wanted to send the Jews to Madagascar? Uh,
1: you do know What's Eichmann? Eichmann, yeah. So, well, this wasn't yeah. This was you know get them out of here, send them back. Uh, the name of the country they founded was Liberia. Oh, so they did send slaves back. And the capital of Liberia is Monrovia. Wow. Still? Yeah.
0: Damn. So, so they named Mon- the Ro- capital
1: of the slave republic. Okay, it, so did
0: he do that as president later on or yes, he did that was yeah, governor?
1: Yeah, they were they were uh, starting this. I mean they realized, you know, what are we gonna do with these guys? These
0: are all the old slaves or anybody that well, These were go back?
1: at that point the these insurgents. were the insurgents. But okay. they Later, they wanted to expand it to send them all back over there. And
0: Liberia is like kind of the Ivory Coast on the on the western yeah. flank of that. Yeah,
1: it's yeah it's like it's Ghana. I think is to uh-huh. the east, to the west. Mm-hmm. Ghana is to the west, and I think Ivory Coast is to the east. Wow. All right. Uh, how.
0: And Liberia has been a free country since that period?
1: Uh, For a long time, Liberia and Ethiopia were the only free countries in Africa.
0: And how is it doing now? Economically? and So, uh, they still still speak
1: English. Mm -hmm. And they have a very uh, heavily accented, uh, grammatically somewhat archaic form of English uh, Liberian students uh, immigrating to the United States still are considered uh, ESL kids, kids who get instruction in English as a second language. Um, the Liberian elite all have American names. I mean, one of the presidents was named John Doe. <laughs> uh, okay. You know, Rollins was another one. I mean, they, they, they maintained the slave names. Um, what what did the government
0: pay the slave owners to take them off their hands? Essentially, yeah. Okay, so a slave owner would say, "All right, I have this, ins- I have five
1: insurgent slaves here. I hear you're running a program." Well, back then they probably just said, "You know, what are we going to do with these guys? We're going to string them up, or we're going to send them to Africa." Okay, and Monroe was basically like a. Government program, I'll give you a
0: certain amount of money and we're going to send to Africa?
1: Uh, for the insurgent slaves, they might not have paid for the, for uh-huh. the slaves. It might have just been, we're not going to string him up, we're not going to hang him, we're just going to send him over to Africa. I see. So, you know, like, like Papillon, you know, they sent him to Devil's Island. Well, he's a criminal. Uh, well, you don't think they considered uh, slave insurrectionists criminals? Yeah, presumably.
0: Um, all right. So, good. All right. Very interesting. So, you, you didn't mention, did you think that... Uh, so, Monroe has two sides of his personality about slavery. In some sense, he has a very hard fist type of behavior, like mentality in terms of law and order. But he also had this idea to send them back to Africa, which I think for a lot of people... I mean, it was a movement in the 20th century for a bit among African-Americans. I think for a lot of people, people see it as a... Pop, we would see it generally as a... Pop. Well, we
1: just think the whole thing is horrible. And, you know, we can't understand it. And in, 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 in nearly every respect, Monroe was a paragon of morality. He was honest. He was pious. He was faithful to his wife. Uh, He lived on his salary. I mean there's there's no scandals No uh, No disrepute accruing to Monroe and yet He was adamant in not even considering concessions to the slaves. So how you know, how do we see this? How do we see uh, these people like Monroe, in, in, in many respects, were estimable, virtuous people, but who just wouldn't move on slavery, something that we see as such a horrendous thing. So, uh, we, I, I think it's, it's useful to think a little bit about, about the economics. I mean, if you're a landowner, the land is your, your basic asset the uh, corrections you make or the improvements you make on the land, if you have any mills, any dams, any ponds, uh, any types of uh, uh, swales or anything for runoff and irrigation, Okay, uh, the buildings, barns, sheds, uh, the houses for yourself and the farm workers. So those are improvements, so land improvements, uh, the crops themselves, the seeds, uh, the farm implements, the tractors, the plows, they didn't have tractors back then, but wagons, plows, mills, anything like that, the livestock, and the slaves. And for a lot of farms, the slaves were the most fungible asset because they could always sell the slaves. Uh, if they had young children who were uh, whose parents were enslaved people, they could sell them and you know make really uh, and, and I'll say make really obscene profits on those sales. I mean the, the sale itself is obscene the profits they were making make it that much more uh, disgusting and and but it was such a source of revenue, of cash, of, of labor, you know, if they had to pay guys or pay workers to do the work that the slaves were doing, uh, their margins would have just been very precarious. Oh, uh,
0: okay. All right, let's go ahead and talk about uh, Monroe um, becoming part of the
1: of the Jefferson administration. So what were his offices? You know, he was Secretary of State. That was under Madison, though. That was under Madison. So he's he's got a 16-year period here where he serves in uh, the Jefferson and the Ma- and the Monroe... I'm sorry, and the Madison... The Jefferson and the Madison Doctrine. Okay. Or administration. It looks
0: like he was uh, sent back to France initially to work with Lib- Robert Livingston... For the Louisiana purchase, later he was appointed ambassador to Great Britain. Um, he, interestingly, it says. Um, It says that he uh, negotiated a Monroe picnic treaty when he was with Great Britain and, and which was an extension of the Jay Treaty, which had expired after ten years. And um, right. Jefferson opposed it, even though it, it it was lucrative for American merchants. When Monroe and the British signed a new treaty, Jefferson refused to submit it to the Senate. Although the treaty called for 10 more years of trade that would have been good for Mrs. Jefferson, was unhappy. Um, and the that kind of drifting between Great Britain and U.S., they say, is partially responsible for the War of 1812. It says Monroe was pained by the administration's repudiation of the
1: treaty, and he ended up falling out with Secretary of State James Madison. So we see here... Uh, the development of the uh, continuing development of Monroe's character, both as a statesman and as a political figure. Who are, whose interests is he looking after pretty consistently with the these wealthy. treaties? Hmm? The merchant the class. The merchant class, yeah. all right? And, and the well-off merchant class. This isn't you know like uh, Grant's father running a tannery in Galena, Illinois. I mean, these are the big traders, you know, the guys who are sending boatloads, barges of merchandise down the river uh, from Ohio, uh, Indiana, Illinois, Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, uh, sending it down through the the Tennessee River, the the Cumberland River the Mississippi, down to the ports, New Orleans, which which was, um, for a very long time, the third largest port in North America. New York, Baltimore, New Orleans were always the big ports. Uh, So a lot of merchandise, a lot of people, a lot of money changing hands there. And remember back at this time, the, re- the United States government was almost entirely dependent on tariffs and imposed through, through the ports for its revenue. I mean, they had land sales, but... No the, income uh, tax. The, the, revenue, the revenues from the ports and from trade, uh, from tariffs and so on like that, were the real big sources of income. So, uh, these, these were critical things for the development of the United States. Jefferson's idea was get away from the maritime trade and settle the land, develop this yeomanry, develop the tens and hundreds of millions of Americans living on the land, producing on the land, supporting themselves. He didn't like the idea of us trading so much. I mean, he even embargoed us, you know, stopped trade with Europe. So uh, here we see uh, Monroe, not at a big difference with Jefferson, but definitely serving an interest that wasn't Jefferson's prime uh, constituency. Madison, who was Monroe's boss, as Secretary of State at the time, kind of, you know, worked to keep Monroe on, on, on the, the reservation. Uh, But, again, we see Monroe serving in the highest echelon of the diplomatic service, uh, making very sophisticated, very balanced deals with foreign powers, and mainly serving the interests of the wealthy. All right, so uh, the War of
0: 1812, is about to break out. Uh, Madison is elected, okay? And he, even though he had a bit of an issue with...
1: Well, Madison Monroe. was elected before... Right, uh, in he, 1811. He, he served almost a term, right? Uh, 18, when was he elected? 1808? Check that, I'm pretty sure that's when he was elected. All right, it looks like Madison was elected in 1809, 1808,
0: 1809.
1: So he had served a term, then got himself in hot water with the British. And that's when he brings
0: uh, Monroe back. On taking office, okay, Monroe assured, Madison assured Monroe that their differences regarding the Monroe Pig. Prin- Pinckney Treaty had been a misunderstanding and the two resumed their friendship. On taking office, Monroe hoped to negotiate treaties with the British and French to end the attacks on American merchant ships. While the French agreed to reduce the attacks and at least seize American ships, the British were less receptive to Monroe's demands. Monroe had long worked for peace with the British, but he came to favor war with Britain, joining the war hawks such as Henry Clay. With the support of Monroe and Clay, Madison asked Congress to declare war upon the British in June 18th,
1: 1812. So again, we see a major shift. A major shift. that um, Mon- uh, Monroe had supported treaties uh, conciliatory towards the British, uh, tying us to British interests expanding transoceanic trade and now uh, when the treaties were implemented and Madison and Monroe saw who was following the treaties you know France followed the treaty France sold us Louisiana Louisiana Purchase France was was more or less not aligned with us but Certainly not hostile to us. Britain, on the other hand, was uh, impounding our ships and uh, impressing our seamen and causing... What, what
0: does it mean, impressing? Imprisoning?
1: So... Uh, because... And, 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 uh, American ships back then uh, didn't do a lot of transoceanic trade. I mean, there were a few that went across the ocean. Most of them... Uh, went up and down the coast uh, and on the rivers. But a few went abroad, went to France, went to Holland, went to Britain, Denmark, places like that. And if they were on the high seas or more likely off France or off Holland, uh, the British who were blockading Europe would would pull them over. They, You know, the American ship is sailing trying to get into why, Utrecht. Or, why
0: were the British blockading Europe?
1: Uh, because they were fighting wars against Napoleon, against the French. Oh, so they wanted no so they were star-
0: going into the French. They, they were basically to the trying, trying to
1: starve the French, right? Okay. So they would they would pull over the American ship. And uh, there's a whole series of complicated naval rules. They, they have to pull over everything. They could only take... Uh, ships into, into tow that have contraband on them, you know, war-making materials. They're supposed to leave the crews alone uh, because they're neutral sailors. So they would come aboard and they'd search the ships and, you know, didn't find any contraband. But then they would examine the seamen, examine the sailors sailing the ship. And if they thought that they were they were TARS, if they thought they were former British Navy sailors, they would take them off the ship and make them serve in the British ships as sailors. So some of the guys who they took like that were in fact former Royal Navy sailors who got out of the Royal Navy, were done with it, and were still sailors, you know, still trying to make a living. Uh, Some of them were uh, uh, deserters from the British Navy, Mm -hmm. but the British treated them all as if they were deserters, and uh, probably four to one. They were either not British, they were former Royal Navy guys who were legally clear of the Navy, Or they were British immigrants to America, sailing, had no connection to the British Navy, but had a British accent, uh, and then some were deserters. But they took them all. And this was a big issue for us because it was crippling our trade. And of course, for the British, it had the effect that France was starved for money. They didn't have the trade with the United States, and the British were slowly starving them for money. All right, all
0: right. Um, I think we should probably stop there because the next scene is going to be Monroe running for president.
1: Well, we're going to, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the War of 1812 then we'll move to his presidency.
0: Do you want to mention anything else about um, his rise, and being a person of the establishment, the relevance for people today? Um, I, th-
1: I think at this point, the big thing is that he's uh more a second tier kind of guy more in the background. I mean definitely one of the Titans, one of the strong men, one of the heavyweights in the uh, administration like he was more of a senator type than an executive type. No, he was an ex- I mean he was a diplomat. he was an executive type, but he was like a Mike Pence. Yeah all right I mean a real heavyweight. But not, you know, not the guy they're looking at and saying this is a, a, a potential president. You know, he was he was one of the crowd. He might have been like, uh, you know, Marco Rubio type. I mean, he's definitely a guy that we notice. He's definitely a guy with some eminence. But he's not, you know, we're not looking at him the way we would have looked at Washington or Jefferson. You know, massive figures from the revolution. You know, even even Adams, you know really, really smart lawyer with a tremendous background, just a uh, completely implacable moral sense, you know, somebody who understood republicanism. I mean, uh, Monroe is a fixer. He's a smoothie. He's, you know, so he's definitely a, a, a contributor, but not yet the guy we're looking at as... The indispensable sort of guy. Do you think when he's serving in these positions, people know
0: that that he'll get his day, where you know the Dole will have his day and he'll be president, or they see at at, like
1: at, him? At this point, he's he's been abroad. He's had a lot of controversy about his his accomplishments abroad. He's not a guy who people are looking at and pointing to and saying. He's he's going to be one of the ones, okay. you know. He's not in Washington all the time, uh, tooting his own horn, you know. He's over in Paris, so no. All right, all right. So um, so the war is going to be critical, though. All right. Well, we we'll the st- war coming up the second American Revolution. All right, great. We'll start with the um, a
0: war of eighteen twelve, and we'll go on to the election and his presidency, and you can expect that from us um, for part two of Monroe coming up and we're gonna try to make our episodes more regular we're in a bit of a better arrangement given that coronavirus is down and you can expect hopefully more episodes and content coming up so thanks for listening